Welcome back to Libromania, a podcast for the book obsessed featuring interviews with authors, discussions about key figures and movements in literary history, examinations of various genres and current events in the literary world, and celebrations of book nerddom. You know, bookstores, book design, book collections, and other things like that. I'm David Kern. This is Chapter 14, in which I chat with novelist Christian Kiefer about his new book, Phantoms, about two families who confront long-buried secrets in a haunting American novel of World War II and Vietnam. As I described to Christian before we started recording, I read Phantoms in, I think, two sittings. I really loved it. It reminded me of the writing of Kaz Ishiguro with an American bent, with a, with a sort of a war novel bent to it. Jasmine Ward, who's the National Book Award-winning author of Sing, Unburied, Sing, wrote that Phantoms sings from its surreal beginning to its stunning end. Kiefer's writing is lovely, ripe with striking figurative language. This is a beautiful, relevant read, she said. And this is the description of the book. Rei Takahashi's return from the battlefields of World War II should have been triumphant, but the fragrant, budding orchards of his rural Northern California home hide a secret that has destroyed everything he holds dear. With his hair now trimmed short and his newly broadened shoulders filling in his uniform, 19-year-old Ray approaches the small house in which he grew up, tucked behind rows of plum trees he planted with his father, only to find it occupied by a family he does not know, a white family. Two decades later, John Fraser adjusts to his own homecoming, detoxing from an addiction acquired in the barracks of Vietnam, yet still aching to write the next great American novel. He struggles to silence the phantoms that have trailed him from the muddy jungles. Frazier's ambitions are put on hold when he finds himself an unwitting witness to a confrontation decades in the making between two steely matriarchs, his aunt Evelyn Wilson and her former neighbor, Kimiko Takahashi. From the halcyon days of pre-World War II Newcastle, when fruit trees glowed like jewels through the dusty, cramped nights of Tule Lake and the wayward years of the post-Vietnam era, Phantoms weaves the splintered stories of two families as they seek an impossible closure. A jarring examination of the personal costs of American exceptionalism and imperialism, and the ghosts that haunt us today, this saga affirms Christian Kiefer's expanding place in contemporary literature. That was the description of the book. As I bring up on the interview you're about to hear, this is a book with a fascinating narrative structure, with some really rich, beautiful writing, and with uh, really captivating characters. I hope that you will check out Christian Kiefer's Phantoms, and I hope that you enjoy this interview. So without further ado, here is Christian Kiefer discussing his new novel, Phantoms. You, you write in the acknowledgments that you grew up in Placer County and that you live there still, right? Yes, I still live there. So when you were growing up there, did, did you know that this was a place that you, you were going to be writing fiction about? Is that something that you that just kind of was, you feel like it's in your bones and it always had to be a place that you told stories about? No, and in fact... Uh, the great joy of fiction writing for me is making it up. Um, yeah. And so I've, I've kind of, I think, ostentatiously not based uh, characters and places on real characters and places in my life. Um, I, I will say for my first book, it, it took place in a cul-de-sac that was really similar to the cul-de-sac that I was living in at the time. But I'd never tell you where what town he's in or what city he's in or what suburb he's in. Hmm. Um, The second book takes place in North Idaho and I did go up there and do research for the book, but um, it wasn't a place that occupied my heart in the way that my home does. Um, And I was a little 
reticent, I think, in the beginning to fictionalize uh, my home place. Um, I think there's a certain amount of acid trust that occurs on a deep psychological level with your home where it tells you its secrets and you keep those secrets for it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, so I, I never have, and it ended up being really interesting because I was able to, uh, approach my home as a writer and drive those roads and walk those, uh, hills under those oaks and think about how to put that feeling into language, hmm. um, which is a privilege you don't, you don't have unless you put yourself there. Um, there's, there, you know, poets do this kind of thing on the regular. So you get <laughs> yeah. like Gary, Gary Snyder or, um, you know, some, some poets that are deeply influenced by plays, um, yeah. Or even, um, or even uh, memoirists, of course. Like I just finished Kiese Lehman's uh, book, Heavy, mm. and um, you know he he through language is occupying his own body in um, in a way that must have ha- must have forced him to do kind of a run around himself mm. um, to figure out how to linguistically parse out his his very real sense of, of everyday self with words. I mean, that's what we do as, as writers anyway. Mm. Um, and, and to apply that to the home, um, meant coming to those secrets that any home place tells you, uh, in a new, in a new way that allows for, I don't know, not, not betrayal, but allows for, um, Mm achieving a new sense of honesty between you and the place and the, and the strangers who then, who you're then inviting into those secrets in that place. Hmm. It's a little like, you know, inviting everyone to come over and hang out in my living room. It's like, it's yeah. sort of a strange feeling. Before you said it. Like, it, it uh, one, one thing, um, uh, it, it, sometimes I hear uh, the county name mispronounced as Placer County, which, which kind of, makes me feel good about it because I'm like, okay, well, Placer County doesn't exist. Placer County does. So I've still fictionalized it. I feel good about that. Yeah. Well, no, as one will, you, no one will find me. No one will find my place. <laughs> as you know, I made the mistake myself. So as you were, um, as you were just speaking there, you used the word betrayal you, you, or you kind of hesitated over it. You were thinking about whether to use that word um, and maybe describing the act of writing about a place that you're you know so well and maybe revealing the secrets of that place. And that's, that was the word that I was going to ask you about if it feels like a betrayal at all. And, and so I guess that makes me wonder, have you, do you, do you feel like you have to be really careful when revealing what you called secrets in a way that's you're conscientious of what those secrets mean to the people who live there and, and, and the people who have lived there in the past and whose memory maybe are tied up in those secrets? Well, part of the answer to that has to do with how we conceptualize that community and, and who belongs in that community and who doesn't. And right. there's, a, there's a large section of the book, and maybe all of the book, is really about this um, understanding of, of the American we, quote unquote, we, mm-hmm. as a particular kind of sort of white, heteronormative male 
um, narrative. You know, the, 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 the question about betrayal um, had, had largely to do with who you're protecting by not telling the secret, first of all. Mm-hmm. Um, this book has a lot to do with the Japanese internment camp experience and especially the homecoming from that experience and the fallout over the next uh, 20 years. Yeah. And one of the questions that I had early on was not just um, who am I to write about the Japanese experience in California, but is this a story that the Japanese even want Mm. discussed, um, Mm. especially by an outsider? Yeah. Um, The generation who who were uh, sent to the camps and in Placer County, um, our, our neighbors were all sent to Tule Lake um, up North of California. Um, that generation was by and large, pretty quiet about the experience. And you'll, and you'll note in the literature, if you, if you start doing searches for um, internment camp experience or internment camp memoirs, there, there aren't many, um, where in contrast, we have a lot of text about Auschwitz, for example. Mm. Um, uh, Tule Lake and those internment camp experiences were largely uh, un- underreported uh, by the people who were who uh, were unduly and terribly uh, sent to those places. And uh, so the question then becomes like, if 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 they didn't want to talk about it, then then who am I to, to break that silence? Now, I will say that the generations um, after um, that generation have been much more um, vociferous about speaking to power about that experience and what it meant. And by and large, the, um, the Japanese Americans that I spoke to, who um, uh, some, of, some of whom were were very young children during the internment camp experience um, were overjoyed that I was taking an interest in that story and was, Mm. and was planning to write something about it, which was gratifying and made me feel um, like I had some small permission to, um, to do the work and and an incentive to do the work with grace and respect and to do it well. Mm. One of the, things that comes up in the book is this concept of suffering in, in silence. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, do you think that that, Gaman, yeah. Gaman, yeah. Do you think that that, yeah. was that, um, was that principle something that, that those, that that generation was just still so committed to, um, that they felt like they would be betraying that speaking of betrayal, um, and betraying the, the, the vow, the virtue of that, that, you know, they, they saw as, um, a cultural virtue almost, you know, um, were they, did they feel like they were betraying that and speaking about it and that, and that, and that, that that's kind of gone away, you know, in the younger generations, the generations that were very young when they were experiencing that. Yeah, I, I think that's accurate. Although I'm also very reticent to talk to the psychology of, yeah, that's fair. Of, uh, of Japanese Americans, but, but I do think in, in speaking to, um, the the Japanese Americans and Japanese folks that I spoke to that that it is a um, deep seated cultural value of particularly of that generation. Um, life is uh, suffering, and um, sometimes you get sent to a 
uh, camp <laughs> up in the desert and, um, hmm. and your entire family gets displaced and your farm gets taken over by your white neighbors and you never get to go home and, um, sh- shrug, shrug, that's, that's life. Hmm. Um, there, there is an interesting sense of uncomplaining that, that you see in oral histories from that generation. Um, it is a kind of, uh, you know, as a, as a white American raised from European roots, it um, strikes me as a, it feels like a kind of fortitude or just um, not, not an acceptance, but a, but a fortitude of like, this is life is life is suffering. And um, we, we move on. There's, there's no reason to expend energy complaining about it. Hmm. A kind of toughness, you know, my family comes um, from Germany um, in the, uh, you know, around the start of the 19th century. And, um, and our, you know, uh, I mean, we love to complain. (laughs) (laughs) It's quite a different thing. I mean, we complain. I mean, I don't know if all European uh, Americans are like this, but (laughs) we, we German Americans, like we about everything that comes around, you know, where, where, um, where in Germany are you from? Well, oh, my family, family, my yeah. family hails from the Black Forest area, okay. uh, southwestern Germany. My grandmother, she was uh, the first of her family to immigrate to the U.S., um, and she was she was in Potsdam during um, World War II. So, oh she, wow! Um, so her last name was Brockhaus. So they, uh, you know, very very German name. Her family's still over there. So I've got that. I've got that blood in me too. Yeah, think so about this complaining complain. question. Yeah, you a lot. Complain yeah. about everything. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's just—it's a cultural value to, um, you know, it—it it, it is interesting um, the, the Japanese um, and Japanese Americans uh, during that period were were sold this kind of bill of goods that they were being sent to the camps to be protected, and in fact, the, even the word camp um, is. It's kind of a linguistic weapon, right? Because it's not scary. I mean, the kids yeah, yeah. like thought, you know, the kids often thought like, oh, we're going to a camp. Like, yeah, yeah. so they like, you know, they packed up their camping stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but fundamentally, um, uh, that, that process, uh, I, I think the, the, the hegemony or the, the people in power really took advantage of the, of the cultural uncomplaining of, of, um, of the Japanese. Um, and the, the notion that, that, um, that you were being sent to a camp for your own protection because the, the public tide was turning against all people who looked, um, Japanese because of the war. Um, and you would be uh, better protected if you were all together and, and, um, and the uh, the quote unquote real Americans could um, uh, could keep an eye on you and make sure nothing untoward happened. Um, that was effectively the narrative that, that was being fed to the families. And um, it, you know, if you if you read the oral histories about about those families, many of them kind of bought that story. Um, it's a lot easier story in terms of uncomplaining than um, our neighbors were uh, uh, xenophobic hats 
and uh, and gathered us all up and shipped us off, um, and then took our land, yeah. which is uh, uh, huh. it's hard to not complain about that. So okay, so you were living in Placer County and growing up there, and and was this was this uh, troubling history? This thing that happened before your time was that kind of was that a thing that haunted the community? I mean, was that thing people talked about that they remembered that there was. Um, discussion of that that you grew up hearing about, or is this something you discovered later and decided, you know, I got to write about this? Yeah, people never talked about it, and in fact, um, it was so covered. In, the people that even in in schools or anything like that. Yeah, I mean, there was probably a unit on it in California <laughs> yeah, yeah. history, you know, yeah, but it was to, yeah, yeah, and it felt abstract. Like mm. here's another here's another odd thing that happened in California. Right. Um, okay. And um, so, I mean, I was aware it happened, but it, it, it you know, Thule Lake is far away. Manzanar yeah. is far away. Like, there's not, there's not a, a, a concentration camp in Placer County. Um, and I, and I use that term concentration camp very specifically. Um, that's what they were. Yeah. So, um, one of the early things that I did that I was interested in is I just went back to the newspapers from um, 45, 40, 44, 45, 46, when the uh, internment camp period was ending and, and our neighbors were returning um, to Placer County to just pick up the pieces. And occasionally there are stories of white neighbors who took care of their of their neighbors' farms, and um, they were in good shape, and people were able to return. But in most cases, the farm had been wholly uh, subsumed and consumed by uh, somebody else, and and was being operated um, by a, a bunch of white strangers, or or not strangers. And um, there's also a lot of instances of uh, dynamite under the under somebody's house or strange fires happening at a Japanese uh, ranch. Um, a lot of indication of, of um, unrest and an unwillingness to allow um, those Americans back into that particular America. Um, I also looked at the Placer High School yearbooks from the early 40s before internment and from after internment in the late 40s. And you see probably 40, 45% um, Japanese kids, uh, Japanese American kids in the early year books. Um, after the war, you see maybe six or eight faces hmm. left. Um, and so that, that in itself is evidence of a kind of change in the culture. Um, the, the Americans in Placer County who were sent to internment camps were largely sent to Tule Lake. They largely, um, returned not to Placer County, but to places like San Jose and San Francisco where they, where they had and still have very vibrant Japanese communities. Yeah, Japanese. As you, as you talk about in the book. So, yeah. how, so how long did your family live in? Like, are they, have they lived there for generations? No, um, we came there. I, I did first grade there, so that okay. that was my first. And we came from. Um, they grew up in Southern California, and um, we're coming out of the hippie era. I was born in '71, 
And um, they just they wanted to get a little bit closer to the land, I think. So we, we moved several times and finally landed in Placer County. And, and after that, a bunch of my other family moved up there. So hmm. a lot of those... Uh, a lot of those LA Kiefer's ended up in Placer County in the end. So what, what did, uh, what'd your parents do? My dad was a mechanic when I was growing up and my mom was a waitress. So it was very much a John Cougar Mellencamp song. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. And we had, you know, we had an acre and, and, and a cow and a couple horses and, you know, some livestock from time to time. And people would come over and play guitar and sing bluegrass songs and stuff. I mean, it was, it was, um, I mean, it was normal when I was a kid, but it, it yeah. seems very special. And, uh, now I feel very lucky to have had, um, this kind of open, uh, open-ended freedom as a child. Yeah. And I did spend a lot of my days, you know, just ranging those hills and, and, uh, resting under the, under the, sh- the shade of the oaks and trying to yeah. find rattlesnakes and, <laughs> jumping into creeks and all that stuff. Yeah. Did you, I mean, you're describing things that you describe Ray and um, Jimmy kind of doing when they're kids. I mean, were you actively, were you saying to yourself, I've got to write about this time as when I was a kid, like the things that I remember, or was it just sort of, these are the characters I'm writing about and these are the things that I remember and it's our place and it's just how it, you know, it's how it was. What did you, was it, were you, I mean, I don't know if that, maybe I'm asking the same question two different ways. <laughs> no, I think it's probably both because you, you write from a perspective, you know, you're trying to write a story, but part of the story is also an understanding of your own sense of, um, of in this case, kind of an idyllic childhood. And yeah. you, so that, that kind of golden glow, which comes, I think, from somebody like Ray Bradbury, who's like really good at writing that golden glow of childhood. Um, (laughs) Dandelion wine or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly that. And I think, um, you know, he's interested in that as a kind of mood uh, or as a kind of magic that lays over the top of a narrative or infuses Hmm. the narrative with a particular scent. Hmm. I'm kind of interested in setting it up as a way to break um, into a more stark and realistic present. Mm. Um, and, you know, you the book is structured with an opening chapter that um, is in uh, first person plural. It's being told effectively by the town about the return of Rei Takahashi from World War II. Um, soldier coming home to Placer County to Newcastle, California, which is a real place, and trying to get back to his home and finding that his home is occupied by uh, white strangers that he doesn't know and doesn't recognize. And chapter two is a completely different narrator talking about having written that first chapter that you just read. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that that is a way to sort of... Sn- quickly snap off that golden glow of childhood and immediately start working a different scene. Hmm. Um, I was really, and I was really taken by the strategy. Um, I, I mentioned to you before we started recording that I read the book in two sittings and it, it very much was kind of a page turner for me. And I was thinking about, you know, there, there is kind of, kind of some, a central mystery or two or a, or a central secret at the core of the story that that keeps you turning the pages but also your narr- like the narrative structure and the way you um, 
use point of view to pursue those secrets or to to sort of uh, uncover them was really fascinating to me. I think that was part of the reason that I kept turning the page because each new perspective, you were telling the same stories at times from a, from a different perspective, and um, those perspectives were bringing this um, this new urgency to a scene that I already knew about. But one of the things about that you were doing in there was you were revealing things that were going to happen later. You were revealing bits yeah. of the secret, you know, in a sort of non-traditional way. Like you were saying, well, this is what's going to happen later in the story, or this person lived, or this person died, and you're telling me just right. right before that happened. So were you do were you doing that in part to to sort of um, subvert just the expectations of like fiction that is meant to unveil some kind of secret or unveil some kind of mystery and and to sort of tell us that that's not what this book is really about. It's not really a mystery book, or was there or 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 should I read it like a mystery book? <laughs> And you were just kind of playing with it a little bit. I think there's three sources that fundamentally affected the way that I approached the structure. Um, And I I have to apologize to the listeners that they're all um, white men. Um, But uh, (laughs) I was lucky enough to see Tim O'Brien do a craft talk at Sewanee a few years ago at the Sewanee Writers Conference in Tennessee. And he started it by doing an elaborate magic trick where he made a bunch of lit candles appear and disappear. (laughs) Then he read from the things they carried and talked about, talked at length about how writing is magic and the key to it is you don't show them the trick afterwards. You just give them the trick and then you walk off the stage. You don't then, you know, you don't, you don't then explain the trick. And I think a lot of um, writing that is unsuccessful, for me at least, shows you the trick. Mm-hmm. Um, Tim, Tim has an amazing book called In the, In the Lake of the Woods, um, which is a murder mystery. And he says very early on, uh, I'm not going to tell you who did it but here's one way it might've happened. And then he gives you a narrative. And then later he'll say, here's another way it might've happened. And he gives you a narrative. And I think there's three or four or five of those in the book. And at the end, he basically says, I told you, I wasn't going to tell you what actually happened. And I'm not the end. <laughs> and the book, and it's, it's incredible and brave. Yeah. Very, I'm and very he probably was laughing every moment of it too. Oh, I mean, he's so smart and so yeah. fearless in his writing, and um, and and such a beautiful uh, uh, writer. The other, so that so that's one thing to sort of hold in the air for a moment. Um, I'm obsessed and have been obsessed for um, uh, uh, twenty five or thirty years with Faulkner's novel Absalom, Absalom, mm. which is um, probably the the book I've read more times than any other. Oh, I still wow. don't, I still don't understand what the hell it's about. <laughs> I'm glad it, that helps me. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> yeah. I've read it 30 or 40 times and there's still, and there's even moments where the writing is so excessive where I just start laughing because I'm yeah. like, Oh my God. Like that was like eight adjectives in a row, Bill. Come on. <laughs> um, well, you've read his book. It's enough to call him by his, call him Bill. So you can call him Bill now. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, he was, Faulkner's always been the guy for me in terms of sentences. He's, he's the sentence guy. But the thing I love about Absalom, Absalom is everybody in that book knows 
way more about the story than uh, the reader ever will, um, because mm-hmm. Faulkner knows those characters so well. And the, the book is effectively a rambling, disjointed narrative of the kind you would get from a drunk a buddy at a bar where, where they would start dropping names and going, and that's when, that's when Billy showed up and, and Billy did this and that. And you'd be like, wait, 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 who is Billy again? You know? <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and um, it makes you feel I, drunk when you're reading it. Yeah. It makes you, well, definitely makes you feel confused. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Faulkner, he doesn't give a about making sure that you uh, understand the story that he's telling um, or conversely, he really trusts your intelligence in figuring it out. And I, and I do really appreciate that from him. Um, that's a book that takes two, three readings to even sort of parse out what happens on a, on a kind of a basic level. And I really like the notion of a storyteller telling a story organically rather than in an arbitrarily, narratively structured way. Um, I don't think when we tell stories we often succeed at structuring them in a way that makes sense. I think we very often have to go, oh, wait, but I forgot to tell you this other thing that happened three months before that, right? And um, I like that. Chiggers uh, in the book, which is the narrator, John Fraser's old war buddy, shows up largely to, to uh, stand in for the reader and, and be able to say, John, you're not making any sense. How high are you right now? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Can you please just stop talking and unravel this narrative for... He even says, like, God, you're a terrible writer. Because <laughs> you, you can't put anything in the right order, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then the third, the third ball to, to, to float in the air is... Uh, are we floating balls or spinning plates? I'm not even <laughs> sure what the metaphor was. Um, is, uh, just makes it. Yeah, we're mixing it. Uh, William Styron's Sophie's Choice. Mm. So that's a that's a book about a narrator named Stingo who's telling the story of his upstairs neighbors, one of whom is Sophie, and her boyfriend, who's um, kind of a madman, is a madman, and she is telling the story of her life in a concentration camp, and those three narratives are are intertwined and and, uh, entangled in ways that I find totally fascinating and complex and resonant. And so those three influences, um, I think ride pretty heavy on this book. Um, The the Absalom was first and then uh, Sophie's Choice offered sort of a way to make sense of the narrative and structure it in, in a way that that allowed me um, a methodology to create a narrator who was white, hmm. who was um, capable of manifesting my own internal privilege and bias and worldview. Um, John Frazier is writing this book in 1983. I kind of think of him as like a Richard Ford or Peter Taylor kind of writer. Huh. Um, and he's probably a little too woke uh, as the white guy for 1983. <laughs> but, um, you know, the readers are reading the book now, not in 1983. So I had to kind of, I had to kind of get him up to speed a little bit. <laughs> he's a little forward thinking. 
He's a little forward thinking for 1983. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. So you, so you're, you're well read. You, I mean, you have, you've, you know, I mean, I know you're a writing teacher and all that now, but so what was growing up as the son of a, you said a mechanic and a waitress? Yeah. So where did your love of literature come from? Were your parents readers? Were they, did you have books in the house? Did they, you know, where, where does all this, all this that, that became your life come from? I don't know. My, my, uh, my, my parents were artistic. So we had a drum set and an electric guitar and an amp and stuff in the closet. Um, uh, my dad would read the newspaper every day, cover to cover. He's not a fiction reader, but he definitely reads. Um, my mom was and is still a very good watercolor painter. Hmm. Um, so there was there was sort of art happening. It wasn't particularly literary at the time, but I think as young people, we gravitate toward the thing that we get the best feedback from. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I didn't have any particular aptitude for math. Um, when I wrote something, I got praise, and I think I just sort of went in that direction. Yeah. That's a, sort of a, a Pavlovian uh, response. And um, I found that it's, um, I don't have a particularly good memory. Um, So things like foreign languages, for example, are very difficult for me to learn because I just have a a lot of trouble remembering that vocabulary. Mm. But I am very good at translating the symbolic um, scratchings of letters and words into language and doing the analysis part of it. That comes Mm. very natural to me. Um, I mean, I couldn't tell you the names of like secondary characters in my own books sometimes, but (laughs) I can can talk forever about the kind of intellectual underpinnings that went into them Mm. because that's, that's the, that's the thing that I'm kind of more natural at. Yeah. Um, And you spent so much time in there probably in that space. More than you do, you probably more than you do writing out the name over and over again or whatever. Yeah, that's right. And, and for me, there's a lot of intellectual or philosophical work that goes into the book that the that the reader never sees. Sure. Um, yeah. yeah. It, you know, in, the, in the case of Phantoms, um, I spent a lot of time with Viet Thanh Nguyen's nonfiction book, Nothing Ever Dies, um, Edward Said's Orientalism, and um, uh, another book of his, which has imperialism in the title, which I can't remember, cultural and cultural, cultural and imperialism, or something like that. Um, I just did a lot of a lot of reading about um, conceptions of Asia and Asians and the quote unquote Oriental in American consciousness and what it means and and um trying to get it at a deep understanding of how asian faces and voices and names appear in our self-conception of america as a particular kind of we hmm. um and uh it was very important for me to get that right um, in, in, and to make sure that that was dealt with with grace and respect. 
Yeah. And so there's, you know, there's just ton. And then, you know, all the, all the regular history stuff, maps of Thule Lake and, and oral histories and visiting sites and, um, talking to people and trying to recreate the old Japantown of Newcastle, which is now just the, the six lanes of the freeway. Um, and, and just really kind of working on that, all of which hopefully is, doesn't appear in the book at all, but it yeah. underpins everything that's in there. Yeah. You know, I think that's the stuff that a lot of time readers, if you're not actively writing, you don't think about all the stuff that goes into the book just in terms of, making yourself a part of something or getting getting things internalized in you so when it comes to the actual writing part it sort of naturally flows out i mean do you do you so so i guess that brings me to the question do you have to kind of earmark things that you're like i have to put this in here and so you put it on a note card or something and it becomes you know something that you just earmark for a spot in the book? Or is it really one of those things where you do try to internalize as much as you possibly can so that when it comes to the writing, it becomes, it naturally flows out of you? Or is it both? I think it's the latter. I I think you internalize, for me, I internalize as much as I can. Um, I write, uh, I I, I do my best with writing a clean draft. Um, I do you know, 40 drafts of the book altogether, probably before it's, it's good enough. Um, I'm a terrible writer, but I'm a pretty decent rewriter. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, That's that's pretty useful. (laughs) At least I got one side of the equation piled in. Well, the Uh, first part is admitting the first problem, right? (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, You know, this book, I turned in a bloated, a convoluted draft that that really how long I, well it was 25,000 words longer than oh wow than okay okay yeah. and i i uh i was mildly surprised that my editor wanted to work with it because i knew it was <laughs> a little unwieldy yeah and um i asked her if she could cut 20,000 words from it um and and she said she'd give it a try she cut 24 and we cut another thousand over the next, over the next iteration. And she, um, her name is Katie Henderson Adams. She was an editor at live right now. She's an independent editor. Um, she's brilliant. And she somehow saw through the choked bramble of, of, um, unkempt, uh, um, alders that I, that I handed in and, and, uh, chopped through all that stuff to get to the the beautiful garden <laughs> that was somehow <laughs> hidden underneath there. Yeah. Um, Thank God for I, Yeah, I mean, she's so good that she sent the book back exhausted, probably, and out of her mind. I pro- you know, I probably turned her into an alcoholic or something. And um, <laughs> and I just, I was. She's so good that I was able to just say uh, accept all edits, and I hit print. Uh, I printed out the clean copy with all of her edits already in. And I just, I started with that as the next draft and I just read through that. And mm. I mean, it like this, it was there, like she found the book in the book. Huh. Um, so did she, without, sorry, go ahead. She, she, she rescued the book, really. She mm. rescued what the book was actually about. Mm. Well, you, you know, we talked earlier uh, briefly, at least about the narrative structure and I, people, I think to really get it, have to read it, of course, it's, I, I, 
that's one of the things I really loved about the book was the way it kind of um, challenged the reader and also was just great fun to dive into. But was that narrative structure... Was it the way it ended up? Was that there in the draft, and you knew you were going to build that structure, or was that something that she helps you pull out and you guys did in revision? No, that was in there, but um, the structure was already there. But but John Fraser, the narrator, was um, much less in control of his own voice. Hmm. Um, interesting, interesting. Okay. Yeah, so you get um, the first section that that john actually writes when he's in his 20s was um a, a bit more excessive in terms of language a bit more thomas wolf and a bit less starin huh. maybe huh. okay and and then his voice throughout was um was very thick and very convoluted in terms of the narrative and chiggers his war buddy um is pr- was present in that early draft through th- maybe three chapters really just as the voice of the reader to stop him and go, Hey, you're not making any sense again. Um, and, and then John would go, okay, okay, wait, let me back up. And then he would start again. And then checkers would go like, now, now you're talking about other stuff and he'd go like, Oh yeah, right. So let me back up again. So you get that. And, and, um, you know, Katie was, you know, Katie's job and the job of any editor, I think, is to take the sort of convoluted, artistically self-indulgent crap that we writers turn in and take a hold of it and turn it toward the reader and go, oh, and, and I definitely have a big problem with getting enraptured by my own language and my own, uh, you know, my own sentences and, um, being super excessive with that stuff. I mean, I, I love Thomas Wolfe. I love Thomas Mann. I love anyone named Thomas, really. <laughs> I love, uh, I love William, <laughs> and William Styron and all the other Williams. Um, uh, what are your kids' I, names? <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> They're all, it's Thomas, 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 William, William, and William. Um, I, uh, you know, as my, as my wonderful agent, Eleanor Jackson, has said, Christian... I know you love Faulkner and all writers love Faulkner, but nobody else does. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask you this then. So as you're revising, I mean, you mentioned, you did mention Styron and some of the other people, but when you're, when you're in the revision process, are there particular writers whose, um, you know, syntax and those sorts of things that you're aiming towards that you're saying, this is someone who's in the end, I want my writing to sound like not just someone who inspires you per se, but who who you say, I want my sentences and my paragraphs to feel like this person's writing feels. Yeah. It's always Faulkner for me. Okay. Okay. So so both in the beginning and in the end, you're in that place. I mean, Faulkner to me is the, is the gold standard for sentence writing for in, in English to, to me, like his, the, the flow of his sentences, the rhythm of his sentences, the challenge of his sentences. Um, um, Siren's probably a, a close second because he's kind of a uh, Faulkner um, with a lot of the bullshit kind of pulled away. Um, <laughs> for, for, for this book, I was also really interested in um, Peter Taylor's voice uh, William Maxwell's voice. Um, I don't think we much read Peter Taylor or William Maxwell anymore, but they're both brilliant, brilliant writers who have a, a very interesting kind of formal conversational voice. Um, you see that in uh, in Richard Ford's nonfiction 
book between them about the book he wrote about his parents. Um, it's kind of this, it's, it's very conversational, but it's also conversational in a somewhat formal way. Like I'm going to tell you a story. I'm not going to take you on any side trips. It's just, this is the story I have to tell. I'm going to tell it as honestly as possible. Um, Peter Taylor and William Maxwell and, and Richard all share that, um, lineage, um, and they all are able to achieve that conversational tone in a way that I find very inviting and very warm and very interesting as a, as a narrative vehicle. John Fraser's voice is in part that voice, especially when he clears away his own um, nonsensical fascination with, in his case, Styron and Thomas Wolfe, who, who he, he says repeatedly that he loves both of them. Um, but when he sort of just gets down to sort of telling you the story of what happened, you know, we were in the car, we were driving around, um, that, that voice is, I think, um, coming out of that tradition of, of Maxwell and Taylor and, and Richard hmm. Ford. Hmm. So this might, I don't know, this might be, um, disrespectful, uh, to even suggest something like this, but you know, when I was reading that for some reason, um, and I say disrespectful only because you know you have these other people that you're aiming towards. Uh, but for some reason, as I was reading, y- your prose kept reminding me of Kaz Ishiguro. Um, oh yeah, remains of the day and uh, never let me go and so forth. I have no, I, I can't put my finger exactly on why because I haven't. You know, I'd have to go com- compare them and try to figure out if I read if I go read Never Let Me Go or something is it going to remind me of Phantoms? But I'm reading it, and maybe it's because in the last year I've read Remains of the Day. I don't know. But that's that's somebody that who for some reason reminded me of, which I thought was interesting because you know that's an, he's an English writer um, with a Japanese heritage. Now that I think about it, I, it's it, I, for some reason that's just who, who it reminded me of a couple times. Uh, that's that's high praise. I mean, I, I I love his work. I've read all of his all of his work, um, and yeah, I mean that that guy. Not only can he write sentences, but he's so good at. Um, slipping in a, a little moment where you laugh in the middle of, of what is, what is sometimes pretty bleak. I think mm-hmm. even the remains of the day is pretty funny where, oh, where yeah, the guys, yeah. no, the sure. guys sort of wandering around in the storm and stuff. And, um, yeah. Yeah. And he's, he's, um, I mean, obviously he's the master at, at, at both the, the character and the story and the sentence level thing. I, 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 I love um, never let me go. And one of the things that I love about it is the the mystery of what's happening isn't as important as the characters in the story. Yeah, I, I, just, I thought about that same thing, yeah. Yeah, and I, I think um, I, I tell students this a lot, and I, and I try to live by it. If you're leaving something out of the story or you're telling the story out of order because you're trying to withhold or obfuscate some aspect of the story so that it's a surprise. My feeling is if you, if you tell the reader all the information right at the beginning and, uh, and there's no mystery, if, if that obliterates the story you're trying to tell, then you don't really have a story to tell. Mm. Um, I think even with a good mystery, like a Raymond Chandler, like you're interested in, in Philip Marlowe and the character's, more than you're interested in the mystery. I mean, the mystery is the kind of way to pull you along through the story, but um, you are hopefully interested in phantoms. You're interested in how John Fraser is going to get through 
Like, what, how, how is he going to survive his own life and what he's done? And how is he going to reconcile those things? And how does uh, the Takahashi family and the Wilsons reconcile their own history? Um, <clears throat> which is not to say that Ray Takahashi's story and the mystery of what happened to him is not unimportant. I mean, it's it's very important. But it's if you knew what happened to him on the first page, um, I, I I hope that it wouldn't adversely affect the reader's interest in the story because the story is about those characters, not about not necessarily about what what happened. Well, I mean, as I said, there throughout the book, there are times when you say, I think you talk about you know Mrs. Wilson, for example, or the you know Treasurer's grandmother. I mean that you basically say what happens to them hundred hundred right. pages before it happens. And in, in a way it keeps you from focusing on that end as the purpose of reading. Like it, it keeps yeah, that from being a distraction to me anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. I think I'm trying to make sure you, you know, which, um, which horse to focus on in, in the race. What I think is um, good novels conclude the part of the story that needs concluding. And they don't give a damn about the part of the story that doesn't need concluding. So oftentimes you'll, um, you know, I, I have these discussions with readers where they'll say like, well, well, what happens next? Like, for example, both The Infinite Tides and The Animals, my first two books, and in a way that feels very open-ended for some readers. But to me... Um, I'm trying to give the readers a little nod to say, I, I ended the part of the book you were supposed to be paying attention to. And I didn't end the part of the book that was irrelevant to me, which is maybe some aspect of the plot or something. Um, I, I'm, I, I think the, the ending of, of a novel or the conclusion of a novel is a way to really put into focus what the whole novel was actually about. So you, you end on a note that I, that is sometimes surprising to readers, but it's, it's a way to point and say, this is the part of the story that needs a real ending because this is what the book was actually about. And sometimes it's not the book that the reader thought they were reading. Uh, there's a really good model of this kind of thing in Ang Lee's film about the Civil War called Ride with the Devil. Huh. Um, it starts about a, um, a, a group of, of white um, Southerners in the in the Civil War. Um, it ends one of the, one of whom is uh, is black, and it it shifts over the course of the book, and it ends with the black character story. And you realize that that was in fact the story all the time. But Ang Lee has obfuscated our understanding of who controls the narrative by giving us a black character with a bunch of white characters. And we think the black character is the token, right? The token black character in this narrative. But in fact, the film is actually about him. And by the time you get to the end, it's very clear that it's shifted completely away from those other characters and it's focusing on him. And by the time you get to the end of the film, you think like, oh, like this was a strategy. He was tricking us and, and calling into question our own biases in terms of narrative and, and who we should be watching in a narrative. Hmm. So, so do you, would you say that in Phantoms, you're after something similar? Like you're, at, you're trying to um, not, well, I guess kind of, well, you, I think you said trick. <laughs> I mean, is that something you're after here? Or? 
or well, I'm not trying to trick more, anyone. I'm just yeah, I'm yeah. just trying to say like my, my you know the the so white narrators fail up. So they succeed even when they fail. And this is something Viet Thanh Nguyen talks about and nothing ever dies when he's talking about the, the, the memory and legacy of the American war in Vietnam. Hmm. Um, John, John Frazier tells a story about his experiences with um, his, his aunt Evelyn and her uh, former neighbor, Kimiko Takahashi, he spends a lot of time sort of driving them around. He's not really part of the narrative. He has nothing whatsoever to do with the Japanese internment. Um, he's effectively trying to find a way to occupy his time in the way that writers do when they go to the library for quote-unquote research and they spend all day <laughs> having, a, having a productive day in the stacks and not writing a word, yeah, which is yeah. you know how, how writers... <laughs> <laughs> how writers are able to feel productive while not writing. Um, and, and, you know, John has returned from, from Vietnam. He wants to be a writer. He's writing, he's quote unquote, writing a book about his experiences in Vietnam, in the American war in Vietnam. And he um, is failing to do that. He carries a lot of guilt. He's involved in this story about his, um, his aunt Evelyn and, and Kimiko Takahashi, largely because he's filling the time it enables him not to work on his book, but it also is a weird way for him to do penance for um, the, the killing of Asians that he has done um, at the behest of, of the U.S. government in, in Southeast Asia. Um, so he, he's, um, he's paying his dues in a way. Um, however, the story is not his to tell. He's not involved in it in any way that really helps uncover any of the narrative at all. He writes it down, but even were he not there, he realizes at the end of the book that he wasn't needed. Um, Kimiko Takahashi and the Takahashi family are completely capable of telling their own story and uncovering the truth on their own. Um, nonetheless, the book ends with John because John is the writer and John is the one telling the story. And John, uh, which you'll find out when you read the end of the book, John certainly fails up. He certainly succeeds when he fails. Like he inherits things that are, that should not be his. He, um, yeah. he's able to tell the story. That's not his story to tell. He apologizes for it repeatedly, but he's also like, well, I'm a writer. I'm going to write it anyway. Um, and this is, this is the, this is white privilege, um, white male privilege, like, you know, written into every sentence of the book. Hmm. So I know you got to go, but does this, um, is this in any way an expression of some kind of, um, uh, well, I'd, maybe the easiest way to say it is just recognition of, well, I'll put it this way. Is it an expression of some kind of guilt on your part or something like that? That, that you know, much I mean, like feeling guilty? Absolutely. I mean, you, as you know, the, the, the first, the first way to deal with, um, racism and sexism and all the isms in our country, especially, um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm speaking to, to and, and for and about white um, Americans, is to confront one's own um, values and one's own internalized sense of, of race and gender in this country. Um, uh, it, it, it may be in, in some ways 
easier for writers, um, for white writers to reconcile their internalized um, privilege um, in part because our best writers today, uh, especially in America and Canada, are women and writers of color. I, th I think the true geniuses working today are, are women and writers of color um, in terms of literary arts. Um, and I'm talking about people like Lauren Groff, um, who I think is a flat-out genius. Um, Mary Miller um, has a new book called Biloxi coming out this month, which is um, uh, probably the best single novel I've read this year. Um, you know, we've got uh, Marlon James and Kiese Lehman and, um, and the poet um, Franny Choi. And uh, I mean, there's just, uh, there's, there's an absolute upwelling of brilliance coming from voices that uh, in, in a more conservative traditional publishing model of, of even 10 years ago probably would have been largely excluded from the table. The table is still owned by uh, white um, uh, publishing people. Um, white people still run uh, most of the publishing companies, uh, most editors, um, and so on. Um, while, so while there's room at the table for more voices, the table itself is still largely owned by the kind of traditional uh, people controlling the narrative. Mm. Um, but I do think in terms of, of addressing or ridding ourselves of whatever lingering traces of racism and sexism um, we have as we, quote, have as white males in America, white American males, I think um, being a good reader and, and a good noticer of what's happening in literature is as good a way as any to address that. Um, it allows you entrance into a world of diversity and diverse voices that you may not have in your own community um, where you live. Um, we we uh, tend to flock together like chickens of particular colors um, in our neighborhoods. And um, bookstores are not like that. Bookstores are filled with with diversity everywhere. Well, thanks so much to Christian Kiefer for joining me to discuss his process in writing uh, this novel. Remember, you can pick up this novel wherever books are sold. It's available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble right now. If you like this episode and you like this show, please remember to head over to iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Addicts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review. Leave us the starred review. Leave us the written review. Well, we'd really appreciate that. It helps us spread the word and create more episodes. Thank you so much for joining me here on Libromania. In our next episode, I'll be joined by the uh, incomparable John Wilson to discuss the three novels that were the finalists for the Pulitzer Prize this year. Talk to you then. 